Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Nightmare. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles Next Generation. As we sit here in the bunker, hunkering down for the fourth <laughs> Northeaster in yeah. two weeks. So there you go. I am Ron Kolick, your host. Uh, no England's own that healthy, yaddy yaddy. And also with me in her bunker is the <laughs> blonde bombshell herself, Ann Carrigan. Hello, good evening. Yes, we're watching the snow again, but we really have hardly any going on right here. No, it's not supposed to start till midnight. Oh, super, super, yeah. super, super. Well, whatever. It is what it is, and my tulips <laughs> will just have to bloom through the snow. Yeah, what actually, I, I heard they're dropping the number down with the amount, so that would be Good. great. That's yeah. awesome. I'm yeah, happy to hear that, considering this is what was this was the first full day of spring, right? Yeah, I believe. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, yesterday was the first day, so I yesterday don't know. Yesterday was the first day. Yeah. So I don't know what that. Yeah, the tulips to. are coming up. Daffodils are coming up. Yeah. The skunks and the turkeys and the animals—they have no clue, like what's going on. They're just like, it's supposed to be spring. It's time to come out of the bunker. You're supposed to know all this. Don't you know that animals are supposed to be psychic? They all uh, tell you that? Yeah, well, um, yeah, well, the skunks shouldn't be out in the snow, and yet they are. Well, it's because they stink. Yeah, this is true. This is true. So anyways, we we got a really great show. Uh, we just, we've got leftovers from uh, a live show. <laughs> And, oh, uh, just not like a pile of leftovers, huh? Mm-mm-mm. We have St. Patrick's Day leftovers here. Really? Yes. You know, we haven't had ours yet. I still got my <gasps> corned beef and cabbage in the refrigerator. I haven't oh. even cooked it yet. Oh, no. Well, you've been sick, so you have an excuse. It's okay. Two weeks now. Jen and I both. Been, oh. You know, oh. Yeah. You know, upper, upper respiratory uh, uh, crap. Uh <sighs> Well, if it would only be nice and you could open the windows, you'd get all the bugs out of the, you know, the germies out. Yeah, you don't want to be near our house because it's probably a death house. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This yeah. is true. I know. Anyway. Not um, like a month ago when it was 60 degrees and I had all the windows open. <laughs> I know. Wasn't that cool? It's yes. February was extremely warm. Yeah. Anyway. So as I mentioned, we got, we're going to talk about uh, haunted planes, trains, ships, and yes. uh, automobiles. Uh, but we also have another episode of uh, uh, Jeff Boyd's uh, New England Legends or whatever that is. Awesome. So that'll be cool. Yeah, it's like 12 minutes long. <laughs> oh, goodness. That's like a quarter. That's a quarter of our whole show. I know. We can go out and have a couple of beers. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he'll still be talking. Yeah, he'll still be talking to me. There you go. That's <laughs> but right. Speaking, speaking about Jeff Belanger, of course, uh, the tickets are now up sale for, uh, yes. for of course, uh, September 29th, 28th, 29th, and 30th. And Jeff will be there doing, uh, it's called Spirit Quest in Search of, and Jeff will be there doing uh, In Search of New England's Legends, oddly enough. <laughs> Imagine that. 
I know. All right, come on, girls. Get out there, buy your tickets, because, you know, everybody loves Jeff. Yes. So come on, get there. Nah, this is interaction this year. He's lost his appeal. He's, getting he's lost his sex appeal? Are you yeah. saying he's too old? He needs to get himself an accent. That's what it is. <laughs> He needs, he needs a British accent. Yeah. He'll be all set. Or maybe even Southern, you know? Yeah. Northern girls like the Southern boys. They do? Oh, my. Yes. Are you kidding me? Yeah. That's not well, <laughs> Quite the opposite. <laughs> well, Quite the opposite. Oh, of course, you're up with a different crowd than I. I just got to remember that. Yeah, slightly. Slightly, we're, slightly. We're highly educated in my crowd. <laughs> oh, <laughs> just <dang>. saying. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all it. right. We just lost all our southern, southern listeners right now. <laughs> you know, right? They all just hung up. Hey, did you see the message? Uh, we got a message the oh, other Pradisha. day. What? Pradisha. Yes. Yes. Remso Martinez, and I hope he's listening because I want to give a shout out to Remso, right? So he he sent us a message and he said, I'm listening to your podcast tonight from Mogadishu, Somalia. I'm in the military and your podcasts are very entertaining. And it's it's just so awesome to get, just, just have somebody drop us a message like that. It's like, wow, that's the other side of the world. Yeah, but no, you know what really kills you is that you get uh, you get uh, you know a friend request from Somalia or something else, and you're always automatically you think of some guy like ah, you know my my uh, I am the minister of East Somalia. Uh, uh, oh. uh, we've got two billion dollars. We have to if you just send me two thousand, I will nice. give you nice. Nice, yeah, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately. Oh well, all right. Everything's taken. Let's not insult Remso, okay? <laughs> no, 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 really. Are you kidding me? One of my, my good, well, I wouldn't say good friends, but one of my friends on Facebook is from Egypt. He's a taxi driver in Egypt, and uh, uh, I, I, I watch his posts, and he watches mine. And so that's it's, exactly. it's kind of cool. yeah. We love our international listeners, and it just, you know, it, it, feels, uh, it feels great when someone says they're enjoying your show on the other side of the world, and I think that's cool. <laughs> That's, that's the reason why I came on to TojiNet many, many years ago when TojiNet was brand new. They were just just, just being born. And uh, I was on WCCM and I uh, got contacted by them. And Internet Radio was, was brand new then. And uh, they said, how would you like to, you know, reach people all over the world? And I said, yeah. So they recruited me and I went. So and Ever since is, we, I've been here, I can't remember how long is. Well, oh, how, I don't. Maybe Roy can tell us how long the station. Like 150 been. years. It's just been that's, forever. Ask uh, Roy. Do you know how long the uh, station? Roy is our producer, by the way. So we're not talking to. Yes, uh, he is. Yeah. Okay. So if you do know Roy, just let us know. Just. Just he for. Talk. Uh, he tolerates. He likes me, but he tolerates Van Helsing. Okay, Roy says seven years or more? Question mark. Okay, he came so. in five years ago, so we. I think, yeah, we do predate him, because we've had a number of uh, producers in my well, time. I, I would say it's longer than that, Roy, because yeah, mm-hmm. I would definitely say that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. Okay. I think I still have the first check they ever sent me. <laughs> Wait a minute! Wait a minute! You got paid? Yeah, I paid. They recruited me. I told oh, you that. Oh crap! Yes. Hey, folks, uh, is a public service announcement. We don't get paid for this. 
Seriously. Well, you don't. I well, at least I don't. Maybe Van Helsing's holding back on me, but uh, I just get paid in glory. Can we get out with the show? Ah, uh, uh, sure. Fine. Sure. We just do this because it's fun. Well, yeah. well, I yeah, do. Ron's like, he invited me to be his co-host. He's like, uh, what are you, what are you doing? You, got, you do anything any every Wednesday night? And I'm like, no, not really. He's like, oh, you want to be my co-host? I'm like, sure, why not? Yeah, it's only an hour a week. Ha ha ha. Yeah. That's the lot. Yeah, I remember some saying, you know what? I have this great idea. Do you mind if I do cemetery tripping every week? <laughs> yeah, that was a really that. bad idea. Yeah. <clears throat> Ron's like, why don't you do it once a month? Okay. <laughs> so now we do it on the live show. I do it on the live show. But yeah, yeah weekly, that would have killed me. So. No kidding. I bowed to your wisdom. I bowed to your wisdom, oh sensei. Yeah. All right, can we talk about something? Yeah, let's talk about these haunted uh, modes of transportation because I get some good stories. Yeah. I do. All right, why don't you start off then? Can we start? All right, because I get a real different. Which sucks, anyways. Yeah. That's what happens. Right now. <laughs> get your uh, get your hot cocoa and Bailey's going. Yeah, so, we talked a lot on our last uh, live video show about haunted modes of transportation. But and there's one thing we didn't talk about, one type, and that is a submarine, right? Please don't uh, tell me you're talking about you boat R five. Oh, no. Did I steal your story? No, it's mine is UB65. Yeah, that's mine. Oh, see? Great mind. All right, what do you got? Let's talk about yours. Go ahead. Tell me about yours. Just throw yours in the trash. All right? No, I doubt it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so I was trying to, uh, you know, think of things we hadn't done uh, in the last show, and I'm like, oh. I thought we were doing leftovers. I had that one for last show. Oh, you did? Yes. my, I used almost all my stories, so I only had two stories left. So, right, boo boo. Okay, so anyway, so back back in uh, the hellacious and bloody battles of World War One, they came up with this new uh, thing called a submarine. So they new. had this submarine. What? We had a submarine in the Revolutionary War. Oh yeah, well whatever. So. The submarine UB-65. I wasn't around back then. You were. So, excuse me. Whatever. Uh, uh, UB-65 was built by the German Imperial Navy in 1916. And before it was even completed and launched to seek havoc upon the enemy, it had already acquired a dark, ominous reputation for death. Mm-hmm. You know what? We need, we need background music so that we can do, put do, the do, 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 I know. know, right? Yeah. Oh, well. Uh, All right. Where was I? Okay. Uh, So the construction of the sub was plagued by numerous freak accidents and horrific deaths. In one instance, while the hull was being laid, a huge steel girder that was being lifted by chains and swung into position crashed to the ground and inexplicably snapped. Two workers were horrifically crushed beneath it. One of the workers was killed instantly, but the other was not so lucky and writhing in agony as colleagues tried desperately to free him. He finally succumbed to his grievous injuries two hours later. 
So they said that the chains were in perfect working condition and no explanation could be found for why they had broken. In another incident, three engineers were in the newly built engine room doing a routine test of the dry cell batteries when they were overcome by sudden noxious diesel fumes. The deadly fumes quickly incapacitated the men and they all died before their bodies could be dragged up into the light of day. And again, there was no explanation for what had caused the fatal leak. These ominous portents of doom and spooky freak accidents would not stop with the completion of the submarine's tumultuous construction. During a test run with the aim of establishing the subseaworthiness, the UB-65 encountered a fierce storm that brewed out of nowhere and violently swept one crewman overboard with an enormous wave. The crewman's body was never found, and it was assumed that he had died. Not long after this, uh, as the sub was doing a test dive, the ballast tank was damaged and the dry cell batteries flooded with seawater, which again filled the engine room with poisonous gas, killing another two crew members. When the captain ordered the sub to surface, it refused to do so as the deadly fumes continued to spread throughout the ship. They were luckily able to repair the malfunctioning sub and get to the surface before any more crew were lost. On another test run, a fracture occurred. Wouldn't you think they'd give up by now? A fracture occurred in one of the ballast tanks yet again. And inundated with a sudden deluge of seawater, UB-65 sank, finally resting upon the bottom with its crew in a mad panic, wondering how long they'd last before they all suffocated. They worked desperately to repair the sub as their oxygen supply dwindled. And after 12 perilous hours, it was finally fixed and able to surface before everyone aboard perished. These accidents quickly imbued the UB-65 with a malevolent reputation as a cursed vessel. Uh, but yet again, in 1917, now all this happened in a year, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so in 1917, despite all of the problems and spooky rumors, it was scheduled to embark upon its official maiden voyage. It hadn't even gone out yet. So uh, as the torpedoes were being placed prior to the first real mission, one of them inexplicably exploded, which damaged the ship, wounded several crew members, and killed the sub's second officer, Lieutenant Erichta. Despite the tragedies... The Germans were desperate for more ships and hastily repaired and launched the UB-65 again. Mm -hmm. So now it's still known for being a cursed vessel, and now they're having ghost sightings. One of the earliest sightings was made as the UB-65 was scouring the English Channel channel for enemies. Channel. I mixed two words up. For Uh enemies to decimate by a lookout stationed up in the ship's conning tower. The lookout noticed someone standing down on the deck directly below him, which was unusual since all of the hatches had been battened down and there should have been no one there. When the mysterious figure looked up, the lookout could clearly see that it was Lieutenant Erichta, the second officer who had been killed in the freak torpedo accident. He shouted some sort of warning and disappeared when the lookout began screaming in terror. The captain thought the crewman was just seeing things, 
but then he found another crewman cowering in fright near the conning tower. The terrified crewman confirmed the story and explained that the dead second officer had sort of hovered off of the ground, up the gangplank, along the bow, and had stopped to look out over the sea before simply vanishing into thin air. Lieutenant Richter began to make regular appearances and was seen by many of the crew members. And apparently... He would gain some company when a crewman was killed in an air raid while on shore leave, and his ghost began to be sighted aboard the sub as well. So now we've got two ghosts on this sub. No, no, you got another one. You got the captain too. And we're, so we're coming. Okay, so the captain tried to discourage the stories and imposed heavy punishments on people who dared to speak of the ghosts. However, the captain's own viewpoint would change somewhat when he saw the ghost of Richter one night with his own eyes. He was shocked to see a lone figure standing out on the deck, which was lurching madly in stormy gray waters. So uh, the figure turned around to reveal that he was Richter, and after which the frightened crewman shouted down to the others that he could see the ghost. The skeptical's captain, sick of all the nonsense about ghostly apparitions and eager to dispel the stories, rushed up to the hatch, but when he arrived, he too saw the specter. The hatch was promptly closed, and the whole crew was in a panic. Uh, let's see. So people, they didn't want to serve on the sub, and uh, they finally assigned a Commodore to investigate the situation, and he became convinced that they were telling the truth. Uh, nevertheless, the Imperial Navy decided that enough was enough and assigned a new captain to the UB-65. Uh, let's see. Let me skip ahead because this is a really long story. So they keep seeing the ghosts, and finally... The torpedo gunner claimed that the apparition had been harassing him for several nights in a row, and this reportedly drove him mad. Uh, and one night, the disturbed crewman climbed out onto the upper deck as a subsurface to recharge its batteries and hurled himself into the sea. And he, his body was never recovered. So we have this sub, and finally, it, the... Blah, 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 it got uh, attacked, and the UB-65 exploded. Oh, sorry. I missed a piece. I guess you did. A final engagement. Okay. The various mysteries surrounding it would continue right up until the UB-65's final engagement, which would prove to be just as bizarre as its dark history. On July 10th, 1918, off Padstow, Cornwall, on the Irish coast, an American submarine came across the UB-65 as it was at the surface. Uh, this is a very compromising position as they are basically sitting ducks open to attack. Additionally, the captain of the American submarine noticed that the German sub was listing as though it had been damaged somehow. The American sub immediately prepared for attack, yet bizarrely, as the torpedoes were being loaded and prepared to fire, the UB-65 spectacularly exploded into a rain of debris for apparently no reason at all. The perplexed Americans had certainly not fired, and there were no other vessels in the immediate vicinity. It was presumed that the UB-65 had experienced a malfunction of its weapon system and had been sunk by its own torpedoes. All of the UB-65's crew of 37 was killed, and none of the bodies were ever found. 
adding to the mystery was the account of one American officer who reported seeing a lone figure in a German officer's overcoat standing on the deck with its arms folded shortly before the mysterious explosion. Uh, and uh, that's pretty much the end. They couldn't find the wreck for years and years, and it was finally found and identified in 2004. Mm-hmm. So, so I have one, one actually another story according to this account. Uh, it says here that uh, that the uh, captain uh, was decapitated by flying shrapnel. Oh, I don't have that in my story. And that night, uh, several crew members reported seeing the dead officer's ghost guiding his headless body. Oh, wow! Yeah. So that was the oh. one just before they all transferred. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so there you go. Well, I thought that was very interesting because I'd never Yeah, I know. I did, too. So last, last time I, uh, yeah, I definitely, uh, yeah, since I wrote it down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Whatever. Oh, well. I thought you were doing your stories. Anyway, moving right along. We did have Nate here last time, and uh, this time, and Nate, of course, talked about uh, uh, haunted vehicles and stuff, right? Yes, he did. Yeah. So, uh, there's one that uh, I think he missed, because uh, my memory sucks, so you never can tell. Yeah, that's but true. But back in 1965, there was a great TV series called My Mother the Car. Oh, before my time, but... Starred Dick Van Dyke yeah. and uh, Susan Sutherland, and uh, the guy's mother came back as a car to uh, irritate him for the rest of his life. <laughs> <laughs> How sweet. Just saying. That's what mothers do. <laughs> That's what they're supposed to do, right? I, I, our parents, what, what do parents do, right? And I just put the link of that first episode up on the, the page, too, so that you can check it out. Oh, but, cool. My mother, the car. Yeah. My mother, the car. My, my mother always used to say to me, um, if you do this, I'm going to come back and, and haunt you for the rest of your life, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump up and down on the end of your bed and wake you up every night. Has she yet? Like, Thanks, Mom. No, has she, she has okay. not. Just she curious. Not. Just curious. You know what, though? She comes, she, my daughter has very vivid dreams about her all the time. So oh, I, I think she, I think she visits Alexis on a regular basis. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Oh, all right. God. So speaking about cars, did we mention Bonnie and Clyde's haunted fort? I don't think we did. That, right. I know that you had that in your stories, but we didn't get to it. That's yes. Right. So, I want to hear about right. this. Yes. That was my second one, but uh, you know, my first one was somehow used up. Uh, anyways. <sighs> Uh, this is Bonnie and Clyde's 1932. Do you remember that Ford Model 18V8? Do you remember that 1932 Ford Model V8? Um, no, Ron. No? I don't. Okay. I don't remember 1932. But okay. Thanks for asking. I'm just curious. <laughs> I mean, a car. I mean, you remember a car? Well, anyway, early in the early 1930s, uh, outlaw couple Bonnie Parker and Clyde Burrow. Uh, went through a crime spree across the American Midwest, committing nearly a dozen robberies and killing both civilians and policemen. Well, at least they weren't 
discriminatory. Uh, the spring ended in, 19, in May 1934, when a couple was ambushed by a posse of law enforcement officers while driving a stolen 1932 Ford V8 in uh, Bittyville Park, Louisiana. According to officials, the officers fired a total of 130 bullets at the vehicle, wow. killing both Bonnie and Clyde, and leaving the stolen Ford a bullet-riddled mess, you think? I think so. You know, right. back then, they used to have Tommy guns. Everybody had freaking Tommy guns. You know, yeah. and, and, you know the, everybody's complained about the AR-15s that we have. These were freaking Tommy guns. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pretty crazy, huh? I know, crazy. Anyways, 81 years after Bonnie and Clyde's death, the infamous V8 now lies behind a glass case at Whiskey Pete's Casino. Been there? Whiskey Pete? Where's that? In Prim, Nevada? Uh, no, I have not. I'm just curious. <laughs> I've been to Las Vegas, but I have not been to Whiskey Pete's. Whiskey Pete's. Whiskey Pete's. The main like that, you know, it has Peets. to be good. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. The car uh, has more or less remained in its uh, Swiss cheese shape <laughs> with finger-sized bullet holes found uh, mostly on the windows and radiator, although the doors have been... <coughs> oh. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. All right, sing light. <coughs> All right. Everybody sing while okay. Ron chokes. Okay, I'm back. All right, he's back. Okay. I have to I have to laugh. I, you know, I also talked about uh, on, on the on the morning show uh, I went in, and I was telling about Spur Quest, and I started talking, and then I broke out laughing, and I couldn't stop laughing for the rest of the show. Laughing? Yes. So just watch out. Um. Okay. I'm, a, I'm in a mood. I'm telling <laughs> you. Very emotional. At least you're in a good mood. <laughs> Very emotional. <laughs> Although the doors have been tied shut and the blood stains on the interior have faded considerably, many people who have viewed, who have viewed the uh, V8 have also reported experiencing a creepy, unnatural feeling while standing near it. With several, oh, we have to go to break. All right. It's the All tunes. Right. Yes, what? So with several uh, who have taken photographs of the guy claiming they have seen strange objects in their pictures. So there you go. Bonnie and Clyde's car. You're listening to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation right here on TojiNet and Pararex Radio. We'll be right back with the following messages. Harry Price, I am speaking to you via the medium of the Ghost Box. Many of you will know I carried out the first live radio broadcast from Haunted House way back in 1936 for the BBC. Now, thanks to the wonders of modern technology, I am still able to keep abreast of 21st century ghost hunting by listening to Ghost Chronicles International on Togginet, Para-X Radio, The Ghost Channel, and even on something called a podcast. Two splendid chaps host it. One is an American who calls himself New England's own Van Helsing, although I have discovered his real name is Ron Kolek. The other is Stephen Parsons, and he's a paranormal scientist. Well, mustache, I'm required elsewhere on something called a K2, but 
But don't forget, I'll be listening in every Tuesday from 8 o'clock in Great Britain and 3 o'clock on the American Eastern Seaboard. I trust you will join me there. Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more, all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place, an oasis in this hectic world. Welcome back to Ghost Chronicles with Ron and Ann. And tonight we're talking about haunted planes, trains, and automobiles and other kinds of transportation. So we're back. So you were all done with your story, Ron, right? I was. Your Bonnie and Clyde car? All right. Yes. Yes. So. People see, take pictures and they get strange images in it. Don't but. you think it's kind of amazing that they kept that car. No. no. I feel like back in those I feel like back in those days, like they would have been just like, ah, toss this thing, it's full of holes, you know? They've got they've got the freaking uh brick wall from uh the Saint Valentine's Day massacre. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Got John Gacy's pickup truck. <laughs> well yeah. tons of other ones. It's gotta be pretty pretty uh freaky. People like their stuff. Oh yes, absolutely. You don't think you don't think that you that that the uh, the uh, Boston Marathon bomber's boat that he was shot up in would be worth like a fortune in, in oh. some some place, right? Yeah, that's yeah. Well, yeah. Sure. Now I'm just sure. talking about back then. That's oh, okay. I didn't think that they kept that stuff uh, as often. I, oh no no no! When Abraham Lincoln, okay, now we're talking 1860s. When Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, right? And he, mm-hmm. they brought him to the this room, and they, uh, you know, he died there. Uh, people took all kinds of souvenirs out of the place, pieces of blood cloth and everything else. Yeah, God. No, people collect that crap. I suppose always they have. People always don't have. change, right? Oh. Like the macabre, uh, the macabre. I do have a story. Uh, I do have a story. Are I you have a story. Hot, yeah. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> Speaking of hot air, I have a story about a ghost blimp. No way! Yes! Imagine. I know, Ron had this one too, but it was more exciting than the ones I had. Oh, why do any work? Uh, whatever. I don't know, carry on. All right, so this is a story about a ghost blimp. And in 1942, a Navy blimp prepared to take off from Treasure Island in San Francisco Bay to search for enemy submarines. 
The United States had entered World War II only nine months earlier, but Japanese subs had sunk at least half a dozen Allied ships off the American West Coast. Uh, so they sent this blimp out, uh, which was an L-8 blimp, and they actually purchased this blimp from Goodyear, believe it or not, and it carried two 325-pound Mark 17 depth bombs mounted on an external rack, a 30-caliber machine gun, and 300 rounds of ammunition, and its mission was to locate and sink any Japanese subs it, uh, that they spotted off San Francisco. Now, okay, it's a blimp. The crew consists of two people, all right? So uh, you like blimps? Right. I, I flew in the Goodyear blimp once Ooh, that's pretty with, cool. with my family. It was very cool. Yeah. My dad knew somebody who got us onto the blimp when it was in Rhode Island, and we all went down and... My mother and father and my brother and I went up. It's pretty cool. You know when wish, the, uh, the wish Zeppelins, we had pictures. <laughs> yeah, the Hindenburg and, and, and the Zeppelins were flying. And I mean, they, those were first class. You sat there, you, you ate at beautiful tables and oh, first yeah. class tables. That you ate and everything else. It was beautiful. Yeah, well, the one so, I was on was really small. So And so was yeah. this one. So uh, the L-8's two-man crew boarded the gondola shortly before takeoff, and Lieutenant Ernest DeWitt Cody and Ensign Charles Ellis Adams were both Navy veterans, married and with exemplary service records. So, uh, let me skip ahead because this is all background on the pilots. Mm -hmm. uh, Flight 101 was scheduled to fly to the Farallon Islands, 30 miles west of San Francisco, then head north to Point Reyes and south to Montara Beach before returning to Treasure Island. The patrol would take four hours with Lieutenant Cody and Ensign Adams expected to return to base sometime between 10 and 10.30 that morning. And the flight started out routine in every way. Uh, so Airship Patrol Squadron 32 was the first LTA unit to be established on the West Coast. And... Uh, that talks about they purchased the blimp from uh, Goodyear, and it has a reputation as an excellent flyer. In its 1,092 trips aloft, it had required no more than the usual maintenance and repair. Inspected four days prior to Cody and Adams' departure, L-8 was deemed to be in fine working condition. L-8's mission was to patrol within a 50-mile radius of San Francisco. Once Cody passed over the Golden Gate, he headed southwest toward the Farallon Islands. At 7.38 a.m., an hour and a half into the patrol, he radioed L-8's position as four miles east of the Farallons. Four minutes later, he sent a second message. Am investigating suspicious oil slick. Stand by. An oil slick could ind indicate an enemy sub lurking below the waves. So it's not surprising that L-8 dropped two Mark IV float, float lights at 7.42 a.m. and began scrutinizing the area. When the Liberty ship Albert Gallatin spotted L-8 smoke flares, its crew sounded the general alarm and manned its guns. Sailors from the nearby fishing trawler Daisy Gray, worried that the blimp was about to depth charge an enemy sub, pulled in its nets but no bombs were dropped. Instead, the L-8 circled the area for more than an hour. Uh, 
the blimp was close enough to Daisy Gray that the trawler's first mate could make out two men in the gondola, one of them with dark hair. Besides, there was no mistaking a blimp of this type. The blimp continued to circle and at one point descended to 30 feet above the waves as if its crew wanted a closer look at some. Then shortly before 9, after 9 a.m., it dropped ballast, rose, and headed back to San Francisco. No one thought this movement seemed unusual, but that was the last time Cody and Adams were ever seen or heard from. Uh, it had broadcast its last message at 7.42 before circling the oil slick. After that, they could not reestablish radio contact, and they completely lost control. The L-8 still hadn't responded by 8.50, and two float planes were sent to search for the blimp. The next indication of L-8's whereabouts came at 10.49 when a Pan Am clipper pilot reported seeing the blimp over the Golden Gate Bridge. He spotted nothing wrong with the ship and it appeared to be under control and heading back to base. And so they were seeing the blimp continuously all over this area. No one thought anything was amiss, assumed they were heading back to base, and then finally somebody noticed... A, a, uh, an off-duty seaman was driving along the coastal highway between San Mateo and San Francisco and he spotted the L-8 in the distance and noticed that the blimp was bent in the middle. He stopped to snap a photograph and his film would soon be confiscated by the authorities. Five hours after the L-8 left Treasure Island, the blimp approached the shore at Ocean Beach near San Francisco and it was noticeably sagging as it moved broadside to the wind, only 50 feet above the water. And so now it's, it's uh, going up and down, so now people are finally seeing that there's something wrong with it. A 17-year-old C.E. Taylor told the San Francisco call bulletin, I put my binoculars on it and could see figures inside the cabin. So now thousands of people are watching this blimp just floating inland. So it finally came to rest and they couldn't figure out what had happened. Uh, she just basically floated down and landed on a car in the middle of a street. Uh, so they surrounded the blimp. The firemen tried to free the crew they thought must be trapped inside. But when they opened it up, there was no sign of the pilots. Uh, and they went out uh, looking for the pilots, and they still couldn't find them. And there were three parachutes that were still on board and a life raft. Um, and they couldn't, the ignition switches were on, everything operated normally, they had four hours of gas remaining, there was nothing wrong with the blimp, but the two pilots had disappeared. So they looked and looked for them. And they finally notified the men's wives. They were officially listed as missing. So despite calling 35 witnesses, the inquiry into these pilots' disappearances, they couldn't find any answers. Why did they stop broadcasting if their radio was working? There's all kinds of theories that abound, but they never, never found the bodies, never found the men, and they don't know what happened to them. And that... Actually, they do. I I was going to get to that. They believe they found the answer. 
Is that what you're going to say? I don't know. You tell me. Right. So in 2009, Otto Gross, who's been researching, uh, I'm sorry, he's been researching the disappearance since 2009, and he believes he found the answer. He, his theory was that the blimp had been secretly testing experimental radar and poorly shielded microwaves over, overpowered the men, causing them to tumble out of the cabin. But no proof has ever been brought forward to support that theory. So that is the end of my story. Do you have anything to add? Well, there's also another theory. And it seems okay. the captain and the co-pilot, uh, I believe, was he, one of them was married, but they had uh, a fear with the other one. So they believe they got into a fight and fell out. Oh, I read that too, but that's completely unsubstantiated. Oh, what has been? <laughs> National Enquirer version. What has been? No, I saw that on a, on a, a documentary, actually. Really? Yeah. They, they, another theory is that there was a latch on the door that yeah. uh, may have been released accidentally. Um, and in the process of trying to rescue the passenger, the pilot might have gone overboard. So... Whatever. It's pretty strange, though. Yes, it is. So, anyways, I've got one. All right. We have Jeff Boyd's thing, which yep. is long. So, yep, anyways, to get to yeah. did I mention this last time? The Eliza Battle. I don't think so. Okay. Launched in Indiana in 1852, the Eliza Battle was a luxury wooden hulled paddle steamer, regularly entertaining presidents and VIPs. Disaster struck on a cold night in February 1858 when the steamer navigator, uh, what? When the steam, oh, steamer navigated the Tom Bigby. What the hell is a Tom Bigby? I have oh. no idea. Okay, that's, oh, that must be a river. Anyways, a fire started on the bales in the main deck and soon spread out of control. Strong ones helped spread the fire, which quickly took over the upper deck. Out of control, the Eliza battle drifted downstream, coming to rest at Kemp's Landing. Men died in efforts to save their loved ones. Women died in efforts to save their children. And through, though fortunately there were a few aboard uh, the ill-fated trip that finally survived, over 100 people died, 26 souls. Oh, wait a minute. Of the 100 people on the boat, 26 souls were lost, mainly attributed to exposure. The uh, ship sank in 28 feet of water, and uh, in the record, it remains there today. So, anyways, during the spring floods, late at, uh, 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 yeah, during the spring flood, late at night, during the full moon, it is said the riverboat can still be seen rising out of the water and floating upriver, with uh, the music playing, the fires burning on deck, and sometimes the outline of the steamer can be sighted uh, in, in the distance. The fire is so bright that the nameplate bearing the Eliza Battle can be seen on the side of the vessel. Local fishermen believe the sightings of the Eliza Battle is a sign of an impending disaster and ill omen to ships still playing uh, the Togabee River. Oh, that's what it is. Tommy Bigby River. Still playing, playing, playing a word. Yeah, I guess it is. Anyways, so that's the story of the Eliza battle. So without okay. further ado, 
let's bring on uh, Jeff Belanger. And uh, so there you go. So without further ado, Jeff Belanger and his yaddy yaddy. Standing by the ocean at night is an entirely different experience, isn't it? It is. Same smell, same sounds. You see the glowing white foam as the waves break on the shore. But beyond that, it's like a sea of black ink. Rafe, the reason we're here at night on the northern shore of Block Island, just off the coast of Rhode Island, is because we're scanning that inky black darkness in search of a burning ghost ship. Hey, I'm Jeff Belanger. And I'm Ray Ozier, and welcome to episode 29 of the New England Legends podcast. If you give us a few minutes, we'll give you something strange to talk about today. I've heard tales of phantom ships before, Jeff. I guess the Flying Dutchman off the coast of South Africa would be the most famous. The ocean is home to countless legends like that. I love the Flying Dutchman legend. The story goes back to at least the 18th century. It's a tattered, ghostly ship that can never make port. They say if your vessel is hailed by the Flying Dutchman... They may ask you to carry some mail or messages to shore. And if you accept the parcels, you and your ship are doomed. Even spotting the Flying Dutchman is said to be a bad omen. Oh, please tell me that the Flying Dutchman has been spotted by Block Island. No, it hasn't. I'm just making the point that sailors have been a superstitious bunch for centuries. Okay, I get that. So what's the story here on Block Island? While the Flying Dutchman's origins are vague, this story on Block Island is based on some hard, horrible facts. All right, let's set this up. Okay, our story begins in Rotterdam, Holland, in August of 1738. The 220-ton British ship Princess Augusta, with Captain George Long at the helm, is ferrying 340 German immigrants from the Palatinate region of Germany to Philadelphia. But this voyage seemed doomed from the start. The first problem the Princess Augusta faced was their water. What do you mean? Well, the water supply was contaminated, and soon passengers and crew started getting sick with what they described as fever and flux. Was it serious? Deadly serious. In the coming weeks of travel, 200 passengers died from illness and half the crew, including Captain George Long. If that wasn't bad enough, the next adversary came from the sea and skies. With Captain Long dead, first mate Andrew Brooke takes command of the ship, just as the weather turns on him. For the next few months, storms and gale winds push the Princess Augusta north, far off course of Philadelphia. The headwind forces the ship to crawl westward at a snail's pace. And then, another problem. Food? Food. Supplies are running out. First mate, now Captain Andrew Brooke, forced his remaining passengers to pay for the few rations they had left, meaning only the wealthiest could potentially survive. That's horrible. It is a desperate act to line his pockets and poor leadership. But the morning after Christmas of 1738, luck seemed to finally be turning for the Princess Augusta. The seas were calm as she sat anchored just 12 miles off the New England coast. Captain Brooke ordered the sail set, and they steered for Long Island Sound between Block Island and Long Island, New York. The passengers and crew had hoped for the first time in months that they would soon make a port, but the sea wasn't through with them yet. Shortly after they set off for the day, a storm moved in. The seas swelled. The winds raged once more, this time from the north-northwest. And then came the snow squalls, lowering visibility to only a few hundred feet. The Princess Augusta fought the storm, which battered and bruised the ship. Under the strain, her hull sprung a leak and began to take on water. The mizzenmast was ordered cut down because the crew feared the ship was ready to break in half from the pounding. If not for bad luck, this ship and her passengers and crew would have no luck at all. But suddenly... The crew spots a turning light beacon up ahead. 
They'll find out soon that this is Block Island. Knowing they're in trouble, they make for the beacon and the salvation that only land can offer. Now, Ray, let me ask you a question. Think about every lighthouse you've ever seen in your life. Where are the beacons placed? Well, I've only ever seen a lighthouse placed on a rock in the water or right at the edge of the shore. Exactly, because that's where they have to be placed. This light, far in front of the Princess Augusta, let them know that land was still a fair distance away. If they make for the light, they should be able to come around and find a place to set the ship. But then... But then the Princess Augusta runs aground. Her hull breaches, and she's wrecked in the shallow waters just off the coast of the northern shore, a place they call Sandy Point on Block Island. But then a curious thing happens. That light in the distance ahead, it goes out. It goes out? Poof. Gone. Why would a lighthouse shut down during a storm? Because it wasn't a lighthouse. It was a horrible trick. All right, I don't understand this. Once the ship was run aground, Andrew Brooke lowers the rowboat with he and his crew, then rows to shore, leaving all the passengers on board by themselves. The following day, more rowboats come and take the passengers to shore, while other locals take their own boats out and salvage whatever they can find in the ship. But one female passenger refuses to leave her belongings on the ship, and she stays behind. So what about that light they saw on shore? The story goes there were some bad people on Block Island who intentionally set that beacon far inland as a way to lure a ship too close to the shore where it would wreck. Once it wrecked, they could take small boats out to the ship and turn their salvage into profits. That's despicable. Once the locals had salvaged what they could, the Princess Augusta was ordered to be set adrift and burned. That female passenger who refused to leave, she stayed. People on shore could hear her screams as the vessel burned and sunk below. Wow, that's really haunting. It is. But there's another version of the story. For help, let's make a phone call. Is that really his phone number? My name's Dr. Michael Bell. I'm a folklorist living in Rhode Island sometimes and other times in Texas. We asked Dr. Bell what happened once the Princess Augusta was wrecked. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about the deposition uh, that was found in the Rhode Island Historical Society archives uh, around 1925, and that had been missing for a long time. Depositions were taken from passengers and crew after the incident as to what happened. Dr. Bell speaks with Block Island historian Fred Benson, who explains that the Princess Augusta's first mate-turned-captain is not a good guy. Turns out Andrew Brooke had good reason not to want his passengers to go ashore. The trunks of the people, the Palatinites, were being looted. Well, he didn't want that revealed. And they were wrecked off Block Island, and they were on a cable. And the people were imploring him to cut the cable, let them go, you know, ashore to save them. And he finally relented, and the Block Islanders saved uh, many of the people on board. That's the, basically, that's the historically, supposedly accurate story of what happened. The ship was then scuttled, possibly burned, so the wreckage wouldn't create future navigational problems. And there's no record of any woman burning with the ship. But still, I wonder, how do we get the other version of this story? So Dr. Bell explained how in 1867, now this is 129 years after the fact, John Greenleaf Whittier writes this poem called The Wreck of the Palatine which is what most people called the Princess Augusta once the story had passed into legend. Got it. 
Most people incorrectly call the Princess Augusta the Palatine. Exactly. So this poem is based on a story Whittier had heard about people who would set up false lights to lure ships to their doom in order to loot them. You have to remember, if a ship wrecked back then, it's your right to salvage the remains. Unless, of course, you wrecked the ship with the intent of looting. So if this was the case of bad luck and the block islanders helped and didn't loot, how did the Palatine light story happen? Well, John Greenleaf Whittier wrote a poem called The Wreck of the Palatine. Yeah, he had received a letter in the late 1860s from a man named John Hazard. And John Hazard told him that story about the Block Islanders setting up a false light to lure the ship ashore so that they could plunder it. And Whittier had experimented with a, a, a ghost ship poem earlier, like in the 1830s, and it didn't work out. And he thought, well, this is a good way to get back to it. So he wrote The, the Wreck of the Palatine using that, that version, that it was the Black Islanders who were really the ones responsible for the wreck and for the plundering uh, of the goods on the ship. Here's a few lines from John Greenleaf Whittier's poem. Down swooped the wreckers like birds of prey, tearing the heart of the ship away, and the dead had never a word to say. And then, with ghastly shimmer and shine, over the rocks and the seething brine, they burn the wreck of the Palatine. Well done, Ray. I like that. <laughs> so Whittier's poem gets popular. The depositions of the actual passengers and crew from 1738 are missing. And this poem version turns into the real story. Who would actually do something like this? Setting up a false light to lure ships? As Dr. Bell explained, that story in practice had gone on for a long time. So, for example, have you ever heard of Nags Head? Sure, a pretty coastal town in North Carolina. The story goes it got its name because nefarious locals used to take a horse, a nag, and place a lantern around its neck and walk them in circles near the shore to look like a lighthouse in order to lure in ships to their doom where they could then be plundered. And I collected a story like that in the early 1980s from an older man on Black Island who said that when he was a child, which would have been in the early uh, 20th century, people would sometimes put a lantern around the neck of a mule and lead it in a circle around a haystack, you know, the turning light of a lighthouse, in order to lure coal barges ashore. And then they would go down and collect the coal. He said when he was a kid, he would go down and collect it. They'd have enough to last the whole winter to heat the house and even sell some. That is cold-blooded, risking people's lives to plunder. So you have this sinister practice of setting a false light that was done all along the coast. You have the real shipwreck of the Princess Augusta, or the Palatine, if you prefer that name. And now we have a burning ghost ship that's most often spotted during the anniversary of the wreck, shortly after Christmas each year. The crazy thing is, something haunts these waters. Even in modern times, people will spot the glow of a burning ghost ship on these waters. They call it the Palatine Light. Man, standing out here in the dark right now, that definitely gives me chills. I usually think of Block Island as this New England paradise that welcomes tourists. But because of Whittier's poem, there's a tiny bit of dark stain here. I think the poem cemented... Well, there you go. We've <laughs> actually run out of time, everyone, so uh, get the That was a long practice. It was called uh, Moon Cursing. And uh, why why they were called the people that sure did that were called moon curses? because if it was a full moon, then uh, they could be caught. So that's why. So, anyways, we're gonna go and uh, 
have a great thanks uh, so much for everything you're welcome and everybody we're going to have a live uh live video broadcast next week from eb cam so from tune alive. in if he's alive good night thanks for listening till next time good night and god bless and remember you can, you can always catch that one on uh, the Legend Tripping website of uh, Jeff Belanger as well. So, good night. God bless. to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us good...